0: This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson.
1: I'm Charles Feldman. Here they come, fast and furious, the COVID vaccine mandates. Just as the calendar slowly tips into 2022, quickly businesses across the country with 100 or more employees will have to start checking their vaccination status or subject workers to regular covid testing here in Los Angeles County. The first indoor vaccine mandate kicks into gear today with L.A. City's vaccine requirement going into effect Monday. We will go in depth on all of it and explain how it all works or at least how it Supposed to all work. And remember all of the uh, stories about dissatisfied workers quitting their jobs to out in search of something better? Well, it turns out a lot of them are now crawling back. They're called boomerang employees, and the numbers are. Growing.
0: West Hollywood has set the bar high when it comes to the minimum wage. The city will start enforcing a $17.64 minimum wage in the new year, highest in the nation. What do the businesses think? Um, Grim new economic research suggests there are millions of functionally unemployed people in the country. And then at the end of the show, daylight saving time, the switch, the changing of the clocks, uh, disrupting your sleep patterns. Which side do you fall on? I, I've decided this year
1: I'm not changing the class.
0: <laughs> you're going to be. You're, you're Arizona.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be. I'm going to be everywhere I go. I'm going to be there at the wrong time.
0: I am on the pick one. I don't care which one you pick. <laughs> just just one. pick it. Okay. Yeah, and stay.
1: <laughs> okay. We start now with uh, a de facto national COVID vaccine mandate. Dorit Rice is a professor at the UC Hastings School of Law, where she focuses on health law and policy. Thanks for being with us. So briefly, concisely, point by point, how does this work?
2: So the brief concise version of the 490 page rule is uh, employers of a hundred and more workers uh, are have to require workers that come into work and work with others to either vaccinate or test. The rule does not apply to people who work outside, does not apply to people who work remotely from home. And the rule is intentionally silent about who's going to pay for testing. It says we're not requiring employers to pay. It also says that unvaccinated workers should be required to mask indoors. Not a big difference for California right now, but would be a big difference in states that do not have mask mandates. It also requires employers to pay leave to, for people to get vaccinated and for a day or two of a side effects after the vaccine.
0: So it kind of seems like if you're not telling the employers to that they have to pay, that it's going to end up being the workers in a lot of cases, because a lot of the employers are not going to shell out for this out of the kindness of their hearts.
2: I suspect that it's going to vary. Some employers are going to... Um, pay for a variety of other reasons. Maybe state law uh, requires them to pay. Uh, maybe they want to make sure that employees actually get tested and they might be worried that no payment testing isn't going to happen and they get, could get over tra- in trouble with that.
1: You know, as you probably know, uh, around the country, certainly here in California, there are a number of police agencies uh, that are not uh, uh, insisting on vaccines for their employees. Would this federal law cover those organizations police organizations fire departments
2: in california yes so generally speaking osha does not uh, osha rules don't apply directly to a state and local government uh, unless the state has an osha plan with uh, a plan with osha to apply them in addition which gets the state more money from osha and california has such a plan
0: if I'm a company and I'm covered by an OSHA rule and I don't like it, can I sue to try and get rid of it?
2: Yes, you can sue. There are going to be a number of lawsuits about this. Uh, some governors have already declared that they will sue. Uh, the, the Attorney General of Arizona has already filed a lawsuit before the uh, standard, uh, although that's put them in a tricky place because you can't direct claims against the standard that isn't there yet. So uh, an employer can sue and we'll see a lot of litigation around this.
1: But is it likely that as that litigation goes forward, so too will the mandates until a court actually makes a decision?
2: So this could go either way. Uh, courts do take time, but a court can issue a pretty quick preliminary injunction or temporary restraining order if it thinks the case has a lot of merit. So it depends, first, what the specific claim a case will make, and second, if the court thinks that it has enough merit to put the uh, to put the mandate on hold while it's litigating when uh, when the trump administration came into power and they issued a number of orders including a travel ban it went directly to court and some courts uh, put the, mand- the ban on hold and others were not inclined to do that so we'll have to see where the courts go on this one
0: Dorit Rice, professor at the UC Hastings School of Law, focuses on health law and policy. Thanks. So coming up next, L.A. County's indoor
1: COVID vaccine mandate officially now in effect. You're listening to KX In-Depth. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman.
0: Still to come, the trial for the men accused of killing Ahmaud Arbery is off to a rough start. The judge says he sees racism in the jury selection process. Before that, West Hollywood set to establish the highest minimum wage in the country.
1: Right now, though, L.A. County's COVID vaccine mandate for indoor spaces kicks into effect today, while L.A. City's own mandate gets going on Monday. So get your vaccine verification cards or QR our codes ready. Dr. Peter Katona is a clinical professor of medicine in infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine and formerly worked as an epidemic intelligence services officer over at the CDC. Thanks for being back with us, doctor. So, uh, I'm not sure if the reaction to all these mandates coming about is, uh, it's good that they're here or what took so long? Well,
3: thank you for having me. Uh, It's a complicated question. You know, certainly it helps to do it. But it also raises antagonisms of people who don't want anybody telling them what to do, people don't want the inconvenience. So it's a it's it's a you have to play one against the other to see which gives you more you know, more of an advantage.
0: I guess we're not the first to do it, though. So do you actually think that that we'll have? I mean, there will be some rough spots. Someone's going to argue at some point and it's going to be a whole thing. But but Charles and I have both been places where they have these, and it seems pretty. I mean, I was in San Francisco last weekend, right? So you walk into the bar and they say, where's your thing? And you show it, and then they say, great, thanks.
3: Well, I've been to half a dozen of these where they check vaccination status, and it was really rather straightforward. I'm more concerned about the smaller establishments and what they're going to do. The smaller restaurants, the smaller place places that don't have really a desire to have somebody policing people at the door.
1: Yeah, but, you know, uh, doctor, uh, I've actually been to uh, one or two of those smaller type places. And, you know, it was no big deal there either. Uh, you know, in one case, it was, you know, the, the waiter and as be, we are being seated said, uh, uh, can you show proof of vaccination? Took out my phone, showed the thing you know, took about maybe five seconds.
3: Yeah, and I I think that's going to be the rule, but there could be some very loud exceptions to that. And there could be people who forgot their proof and they're going to be really upset. And you're going to have to deal with that. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I think it's a good thing to do. I think indoor environments are the highest risk right now, and anything we can do to cut down the risk in an indoor environment is important. So... Don't get me wrong, but I, I'm just anticipating that there are going to be isolated problems with
0: it. Where do you think it works the most, not from the uh, you know people fighting about it side, but from the comfort side for the uh, patrons, the people going in? And there's some rules that are different between L.A. County and L.A. City. The cities is, is further, but I think in places like gyms. Maybe there's people who are going to feel a whole lot more comfortable going to the gym when they know that everybody's vaccinated.
3: Absolutely, and I think that's a very good thing. You know, Gyms are a good example of that. And I like the way that we accommodated that in the past by having them outdoors as much as possible. So, no, I I think this is a good thing. But I just want to be sure we understand that there's going to be bumps in the road here that are going to be loud and clear to some people.
1: Well, let me create a bump. Uh, Right now, the proof of full vaccination is uh, two of either the uh, uh, Pfizer or, or, uh, or Moderna or one of the Johnson & Johnson. What about boosters? Should the proof of vaccination require proof of, of uh, uh, two and one?
3: I think eventually when we know more about how vaccination helps and wanes over time, we can add that to the regimen. But it's, it's too early to know that now, especially understanding that the way we measure immunity is a little complicated and it involves things that are very, very difficult to measure. So no, we're not there yet. But at some point, when we have much clearer parameters that after X amount of months, Pfizer wears out and needs a booster, and same for Moderna and, uh, and Johnson and Johnson. So I think we'll get there at some point. But I don't think we're anywhere near that yet.
0: Dr. Peter Katona, clinical professor of medicine and infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine.
1: See, I I think that is going to be the real bump ahead when places have to ask not only for you to prove you were vaccinated, but also that you had a booster shot Mm -hmm. and everyone's going to have different dates and times and, and things and, yeah that's know. wow
0: coming You're gonna up have the, to update your app yeah that's which i'm sure one. will be a very easy process <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah right in the state of california
1: <laughs> yeah it only took me four months the boomerang empl- employees phenomenon challenges the idea that it's a worker friendly marketplace out there when we come back we'll talk about that
0: This is KGNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. i Mike Simpson.
1: Spring ahead, fall back,
0: right? Spring mm-hmm. ahead, fall back. Yeah. I,
1: I hated that yeah. as a kid. little
0: dance we do. Yeah,
1: yeah. but I, I hate that now. This is the week. I bet you everybody out there hates it, too.
0: My dad and I were late to soccer one time he because he didn't change the clocks. Yeah, yeah
1: see? And, and this... <laughs> this.
0: My this. mom remembers because she calls it. where are you guys?
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is the weekend of the dreaded change your clock.
0: But why do we do it?
1: I don't have the slightest idea. Can we stop idea. it?
0: Or we'll talk about yeah. that later on. Right now, you might have seen this at uh, your own office in recent months. Workers quit. They go out. They find um, greener pastures and more fulfilling jobs, uh, only to come crawling back when that never happens. Boomerang employees. Abby Ship chairs the management and leadership department at Texas Christian University, the Neely School of Business. Abby, thanks for being with us. Are we seeing more of this, the, uh, the boomerang employee?
4: Yes, uh, thanks for having me. I absolutely think we'll see more of this. And I, I think we're just beginning, quite frankly, because as more and more companies are, are hiring with a great resignation, so many people are quitting. Um, where do we look but to say, like, what, what's a known quantity? And that's a former employee who was a good performer.
1: But we've been hearing uh, of late about how uh, because people have been quitting, Uh, It's become a a workers market and they can come back and demand pretty much the price they they want. And many employers are more than happy to pay it. But if a lot of people start going back to jobs, then isn't it going to switch around and, and wages likely to go back down again?
4: uh hard to say honestly, it really depends on the company's policy for this. and even before uh, the pandemic and some of these these trends, you know one of the things we always cautioned people about was it's it's fine to recruit boomerangs back, but think about how that feels for them to think they have to leave to get a pay increase and then come back or for the employees who stayed and were loyal. So I think companies would be smart to be cautious about which boomerangs they bring back, which ones they're willing to pay that premium. Uh, but absolutely, it's a it's it almost it's like a game of musical chairs at this point.
0: Is it always the crawling back? As I think some people see it, like oh, they didn't find what they wanted, and now they're on they're they're coming back again, and they need a job, or is it you know? Sometimes people leave and then maybe they learn some new stuff at their other job and then then you want them back. I'm glad you
4: brought that up. In fact, the data that we have would show that um, oftentimes the the people who are the best boomerangs are the ones who left either maybe they had a personal shock, unexpectedly got pregnant. Um, They could have gotten a better offer. They could have just wanted to get experience someplace else and, and broaden their horizons. Um, it's the boomerangs who are intentional about coming back, I think, are the ones that we want to keep an eye on. Um, I think those are the stories we tell ourselves to try to explain what other people have done. But quite frankly, when you talk to people who make the choice to go back to a former employer, and um, they're usually doing so intentionally. And I think with with the best of intentions.
1: Is there an analogous situation in recent times?
4: I don't know. This pandemic, of course, has changed everything and turned everything upside down. I think um, this has been a trend that we, we've we known about for, you know, I, I did my research in 2014 uh, originally to define boomerangs. At that time, they were still, it's just a rehire, right? That's all it is. It's just a rehire. Um, but I think when you think about um, how, how we are desperate now for employees. I think companies are having to get creative. And so there were some firms that were already doing this using alumni networks, for example. And then there are other firms going, gosh, I've never thought about this. I used to think of somebody leaving as being disloyal or, you know, uh, breaking up with the firm. And, and maybe I should rethink that.
0: Is it also easier now that everybody's got LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and everybody everybody got cell phones? You can keep track of people because, you know, I guess if you were out of the Rolodex... In the older days, then you were out of the Rolodex. Sorry.
4: That's right. Yes, yes. And when we initially collected some of our data, you know, prior to 2014, it absolutely it was the personal connections. Are you still in touch with your former manager? Was your manager somebody reaching out and keeping that network going? I do think LinkedIn helps, right? We have a lot more visibility. We have a lot more opportunity to connect with different people. We can also watch, you know, what are they doing at that next organization? Are they ripe for being recruited back? So absolutely, I do think that helps. I think organizations, too, are smart in that if they can form uh, LinkedIn groups with their alumni, if they can create some opportunities to stay, they can manage this process to their advantage. But, you
1: know, to go back to the loyalty uh, question, how does an employer know that, that an employee that already left once and they come back, that given the next opportunity to walk out the door, they won't just do it again?
4: It's a great question, and one that we looked at in our data because that was our concern as well. The particular company that I studied, a very large um, uh, consulting firm, didn't have that. In fact, what they found was that once people had gone away for whatever reason, for personal or to look at, at another organization, they almost had more clarity, and so they were coming back with a great deal of intention. Um, it's no guarantee, of course, and I think much of that depends upon uh, how how they leave the firm, how they're treated when they come back, and um, and you know. And people want to fit, right? They want to be in a place where they're a part of the culture. They they like the people they work with. And so I think as companies can manage that process, they can, you know, for sure, get boomerangs who stay longer the second time.
0: Abby Shipp chairs the Management and Leadership Department, the Texas Christian University Neely School of Business.
1: Uh, as we mentioned a little bit later on, we're going to talk about, you know, this is the weekend when we turn our clocks back.
0: You're listening to KX In-Depth. With Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. West Hollywood, an expensive place to live. Rents are high, homes expensive, daily cost of living among the highest in the country. So it would make sense to have a minimum wage for workers there Uh, that's higher, and that's exactly what's about to happen.
1: Starting the 1st of January, hotel workers must be paid a minimum wage of $17.64. That's the highest base wage in the entire USA. And starting on July 1st, all workers are eligible for that higher wage. Lauren Meister is the mayor of West Hollywood. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Let me ask you this, because every time uh, any place wants to raise or the a suggestion that they should be uh, raising the minimum wage you often hear from the business community something along the lines of if we have to raise the minimum wage we're going to go out of business we're not going to be able to afford to have workers we're going to have to pass the cost on to our customers how are you guys handling it in west hollywood
5: yeah well what we're doing is we have a phased uh, approach so employees at uh, large businesses uh, they'll be uh, getting a minimum wage of 1550 an hour starting january 1st 2022 then it goes to 1650 then to 1750 so that um that way not all of the burden is on the employer at this you know at once uh small businesses which are uh 50 uh, actually less than 50 employees will be at it a, a lower rate starting at 15 dollars uh, January 1st, 2022, going to 16, then 17, and eventually catching up, both will catch up with the whole hotel employee wages of 1764, which is also going to be increasing by CPI.
0: And was that done purposefully? Because did you hear from businesses saying, you know what, maybe I can swing this, but I'm still trying to recover. It's the pandemic. I got hit hard. I need some more time.
5: Look, absolutely, uh, they are the businesses are having uh, challenges filling positions. They have to pay back, uh, you know, rent uh, uh, that throughout the, the whole period of COVID. That uh, you know we had that on uh, on hold, but it does have to be paid back. Uh, there have been supply chain issues due to COVID. And let's face it, rents, commercial rents in the city of West Hollywood go anywhere from four dollars to eight dollars per square foot. So this we are not, uh, as you said, we're not a, a, an inexpensive city.
1: Uh, here comes uh, what we call the 64 cent question. <laughs> Mike and I were <laughs> saying, uh, how did you Before come Before you up? came on, we were like, what is
0: yeah, why, why is it like that?
1: Yeah. Why seventeen dollars and sixty four cents? Why not seventeen or seventeen fifty or eighteen? Why seventeen dollars and sixty four cents?
5: That's a really good question, and I, I once learned that uh, if you don't have the answer, just say, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was what the hotel uh, unions were fighting for. Uh, they, so, were fi-
1: they were fighting for 1764?
5: Yes. Really? They were.
0: Okay. Yep. We want more 1764. That's right, it. I bet you go. that's you go. it. You need a no, chance or it doesn't great. work.
5: It sounds, it sounds good.
0: So is that how it started with the hotels? And then and what took it to the next level where you would expand it to, to everybody?
5: Well, we just felt that there needed to be a parity. You know, at some point we wanted to get to a, a single minimum wage. Uh, we felt that that would be the most fair, fair way to go about it. Um, but we did also realize that, you know, w- look, we're a city of small businesses and uh, You know, over 90 percent of our businesses probably have less than 50 employees. So we really did have to be sensitive to the fact that this was not something that was going to happen overnight with them.
1: What about restaurant workers? Because historically, as you know, uh, restaurant workers are in this whole different category, right? Uh, Do they benefit from any of this?
5: Uh, Yeah. Well, uh, actually, the um, the servers do. most of them uh, already make a, a, a decent wage with tips. And uh, what the, uh, actually a part of our uh, conversation uh, yesterday evening was the fact that that the state of California has regulations regarding counting tips as part of total compensation. Um, our city attorney thought that there, you know, there might be something there, but you know, we we just didn't get there last night. Um, but that is that is that was a big concern for uh restaurant owners.
0: Yeah, I mean Lisa Vanderpump got up there on on Zoom and yep, called yep. in. Um you yes. want to respond to what what she said cuz she didn't seem too happy about this. And she's got what yeah, three in your city?
5: Yes, um and I and I absolutely understand um the situation. Um again, I think uh what we tried to do by by phasing in uh, the increases, as opposed to just saying, "Okay, we're going to make it 17.64 for all businesses," uh, was really a uh, reaction to the businesses and trying to uh, trying to accommodate them. Uh, look, we understand that this is challenging. Uh, the The minimum wage wage discussion is a challenging one. Uh, you know, as a city council member, I want to ensure that our workers are provided a wage they can live on. Uh, I want our businesses to be able to recover in post-COVID economy. And I also want our residents who are in limited incomes to be able to afford goods and services in our city. So my hope is that we can meet all three of these goals by by phasing in this new minimum wage over time, rather than uh, mandating it all at once.
0: All right, Lauren Meister, mayor of West Hollywood, thanks. The nation's unemployment
1: rate, is it higher, much higher than we realize? We'll find out when
0: we come back. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman.
1: Well, California's official unemployment rate right now sits at 7.5%, which is about 1.4 million people out of work in the state. But the real figure might be closer to 5 million people who are out of work in California. They are considered functionally unemployed people, seeking but unable to find full-time work that would carry them over the poverty line.
0: It's not new. Economists have figured that the unemployment uh, has been undercounted for years. Uh, Ron Insana, senior analyst and commentator on CNBC, host of the Markets Scoreboard reports. So, Ron, yeah, I could be partially employed. I could be working a number of jobs or just a few hours a week or something struggling to get by. And according to the government, they think I'm doing a lot better than I actually am.
6: <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's true only up to a point. I mean, we have several measures of unemployment, guys, that, that the Labor Department itself puts out. We have the monthly number that we're going to get tomorrow, which is the so-called U3 unemployment rate. And and that's a typical survey of, of, of institutions that hire people in large numbers. And that is is, is, is typically the number that people complain about because it undercounts those who are marginally attached to the workforce as was described in the survey that you talked about, or those who in some ways have left the workforce altogether. So we're currently at about 4.8% on that read. We're significantly higher in in something that's known as U6, which is a broader measure of unemployment, probably closer to nine or 10%. And then when you you know when you go outside that the numbers get bigger again. Now, the flip side of this, which I find really interesting, and I just got back from a couple of business trips around the country. You know, it's also true at the same time that companies cannot find workers even at decent wages. I was talking to someone who's in the logistics business who can't find truckers who would otherwise earn well in excess of 100000 dollars a year. And when you look at some of these other um, jobs that are actually pretty decent paying, um, there's a shortage of workers. It's coming from this big rethink, the great resignation, as it were, where 50 percent of Americans today are contemplating quitting their jobs. So the quit rate very high. The number of available jobs at 10.4 million exceeds the number of unemployed. So there are a lot of moving parts here that defy any simple explanation.
1: Do we have any uh, data at this point, on how many of those people who quit their jobs thinking that, you know, the grass is greener on some other side of the street, and then they find out that isn't necessarily so, because we just did in an earlier segment on the show today, uh, a, a story about these so-called the boomerangs. boomerangs. Yeah, yeah, who left yeah. Their, their left their their jobs, and now they're coming back going, yeah, actually, maybe we really do want to work for whatever this lousy company is. So do we have any figures
6: um i'm not sure that we have specific figures on that i think you know with respect to the boomerang prospect that's true in some cases you know i've been thinking about this a lot lately and and trying to analyze um what's going on with respect to labor market psychology there's a, a grocery store in my neighborhood that's offering 14 dollars an hour an hour to be a cashier and at the same time they also have five rows of self-checkout so You know, you're going back and you're thinking, listen, Max, I got two years in this place before it's all self-checkout, right? And so maybe I'm going to go to school and get a degree and get a job that has better prospects over the longer haul. Uh, There, Yeah, there are some people with limited um, skills because they haven't necessarily kept up with the changes in the workplace that require uh, more, let's say, technological skills. And so they go out they look and then they go back. Uh, But we're really having a difficult time compiling really hard data on exactly how this works. Now, I know we're short 100,000 truckers in the United States, right? We have um, all manner of uh, jobs that are going wanting at the moment for lack of available individuals to fill them. And we have an immigration policy that's holding back, let's say, the agriculture industry uh, and, and other industries that would otherwise benefit from an inflow of individuals that would fill those jobs. So this has become an extremely complex issue, and I do think Part of it also is a pandemic related phenomenon, kind of like a post-war experience where labor comes back, they decide they don't like what they're doing, given what they've been through over the last 18 months, and they're just looking around for better pay, more flexibility, better treatment, more loyalty, and, and I think this is a shift that may be structural in nature that could last for quite some time
0: i guess a lot of people are scratching their heads though going okay if people are out of work right now they quit the other job they're part of the great resignation they're looking for something else at what point do you just have to take something because how how do you have the savings to hold on we've had all these stories for years and years people only have this small amount in their bank account if there's an emergency
6: and that's not entirely true because the transfer payments that took place during the um a CARES Act and, and the other fiscal stimulus or, or, or in income replacement programs that were put in place. We have nearly $2 trillion of ex, excess savings in the U.S. banking system among households. Their balance sheets are in better shape than they have been for 40 years. And then when you look at this exodus of baby boomers, some 3 million individuals retired early, yet a stock market that doubled in 18 months. And so you do have people with dedicated savings who were able to leave the workforce relatively early, and decide not to go back. And so that sucks 3 million people out of the labor force, you still have over a million women who haven't returned to the labor force because of all the problems we've had with hybrid schooling and and then and an incomplete rollout of the school year around the country. So again, you know, in, in certain circumstances, we've literally removed over 4 million people from the labor force, and they may not be coming back. And, and you know the cost of childcare is, is is extraordinarily high, so some women are making the decision to stay home rather than pay up or try to find a childcare facility that can actually hire people. You know, at usually typically fairly depressed wages. So again, th- th- this is extraordinarily complex. And I just wrote a piece today about the Federal Reserve not necessarily needing to raise interest rates to dampen inflation because this is much more like a post-war environment than a typical end of business cycle uh, uh, process. SO UNTIL WE WORK OUT THESE SUPPLY ISSUES AND LABOR SHORTAGES, um, I'M NOT SURE, ONE, THAT IT MAKES SENSE TO RAISE INTEREST RATES OR, TWO, THAT WE HAVE ANY DEFINITIVE NEAR-TERM ANSWERS ABOUT WHAT THE WORKPLACE OF THE FUTURE IS GOING TO LOOK LIKE GIVEN HOW RAPIDLY IT'S CHANGING AND HOW MUCH TECHNOLOGY IS BEING USED NOW TO REPLACE THOSE WORKERS WHO DON'T WANT TO COME BACK TO HIGH-TOUCH customer-facing jobs.
1: You know, it's interesting you mentioned it's more like a uh, post-war economy. So it it raises the question, is this only something that we're experiencing in this country or are all these complexities happening all over the world
6: now? So we saw a Harris poll that said in the United States, 50 percent of individuals are thinking of quitting their jobs. That number around the world is about 40, 45 percent. So, you know, the pandemic in many ways was profound. Look, we just crossed the 750,000 uh, 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 lost individuals in the United States alone. Five million people around the world died from the coronavirus. In many ways, these numbers of lost individuals mirror or exceed the number of people lost during periods of war. And so, it, and you had this, you know, shelter in place. You had a redirection of resources. You had um, work from home. You had all kinds of curtailment of normal behavior, which is very typical of of a war environment and then a post-war exit where in periods after world war one and two in particular you saw labor unrest you saw people demanding more of their employers you saw the gi bill come out which deferred some individuals from going back into the labor force and we're seeing some people trying to reskill in a very similar fashion because the market is changing and you know amazon's using robots or will be using robots to load 800 boxes per hour onto a conveyor belt so we'll have fewer warehouse workers so people are really rethinking all that and then on top of that in this period and i don't mean to drone on we also had a reassessment of life and you know and and the american style model where we you know uh live to work and the europeans work to live uh and other cultures do the same and so i think there's really a profound analysis or 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 re uh thinking of of what it is we want to do how much we want to do it for in what environment we want to be, and how much flexibility we want to have uh, to include other aspects of life that we in the past have maybe ignored uh, to our detriment.
0: Ron Insana, Senior Analyst Commentator, CNBC. He's got the market scoreboard report. Ron, thanks. More in depth on the way, another half an hour. We're back on KGNX In-Depth. I'm
1: Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The murder trial of the three white men charged with the murder of black man, Ahmaud Aubrey uh, in Georgia, is being closely watched for a number of reasons. First and foremost... The murder of Aubrey as he was jogging through a residential area was part of a racial reckoning this country went through last year and now the trial is off to a very rough start.
0: Out of the 12 jurors selected, which is set to officially begin tomorrow the trial, 11 are white, only one is black. Veronica Waters, reporter and anchor for WSB News Radio Atlanta, has been covering the jury selection process. Veronica, thanks for being here. So I imagine the family has some things to say about this, but also the judge had some things to say.
7: Yeah, so let's start with the family. The mother of Ahmad Arbery, uh, Mike and Charles, uh, whose name is Wanda Cooper Jones, actually called it devastating yesterday after the jury had been selected. And we had heard arguments about whether or not this jury selection, as it was initially, was going to stand. She said it was really hard to see so many black jurors questioned so extremely harshly by defense attorneys and grilled in a way that even the judge had mentioned to lawyers along the way, telling them it's You should be cautious about making this sound like it's a cross-examination for folks who are coming in here and doing their jury duty. And then today, the father of Ahmad Arbery, Marcus Arbery Sr., said this is, you got a jury like it's 1955 over here. He thinks that justice may not be on the horizon. Ahmad's mother says she's hopeful, though, that even this jury of 11 white people and one black person will convict once they weigh all of the evidence.
1: Now, I, I did a quick uh, lookup of Georgia law, and from what I'm reading, uh, the judge's hands are tied, right? Uh, there's really nothing the judge
7: could do. Right. So you may often hear if you listen to cases, legal cases, as I do, you know that there is a Supreme Court case, uh, the Batson decision, which made it illegal to strike jurors based solely on race. So that was the initial motion, kind of a reverse Batson, because usually these cases seem to come with prosecutors being the ones in the past to strike the black jurors from a case that might have racial implications like this. So the, she said, I'm going to bring up sort of a reverse Batson motion here and note that the prosecutors have struck 11 of the only 12 jurors that we had in the jury pool. And she made her case, and the judge said, yes, you've made a prima facie case, that this is actually what happened. She then listed the ousted jurors that she thought... uh, mate should be in contention for the pool, essentially. And then the defense was able to go down that list one by one and give what are called race-neutral reasons for keeping them on the panel. And Judge Timothy Walmsley said, yes, there is intentional discrimination on this panel, but the defense has essentially given themselves legal cover by successfully arguing convincingly that they had reasons other than these folks being black to not be on the jury. This is why we struck them. And so the strikes will stand.
0: How closely watched was this whole process? And, and when they put out the call, what was that like? I imagine there are some jurors in the pool that, that wouldn't even want to serve maybe on a case like this because they know it's being watched, you know, nationwide.
7: Great question. Those were actually questions that we heard repeatedly over and over in the individual voir dire of these jurors, what kind of pressure are you going to feel from the outside? If you are seated on this jury, do you think that the community will be upset depending on how the verdict goes? Would that affect how you deliberate in the jury room? What do you think about this case? And, and, And for a case that has so many racial implications here, it's interesting, guys, that the jurors who were both black and white coming into this courtroom had strong opinions, not just black people in this community of Glenn County said, I think something was wrong here. We had white jurors who said, listen, I think if I was a stranger walking through their neighborhood, there's no way they would have targeted me. I believe that they targeted this young man because he was black. And I think that something needs to be done. A lot of people had opinions about the fact that these guys, just from what they've seen and heard, are guilty. And they thought that something should be done to punish them. Those folks are ousted from the pool.
0: Veronica Waters, reporter, anchor, WSB News Radio in Atlanta. Veronica, thanks. Coming up next, it's coming.
1: The clock turning it back. Again. Our favorite thing. Yeah, when we come back. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman.
0: So not too many of us have been sleeping super well over the last couple of years. Uh, But here comes another big switch overnight. Saturday to Sunday, the twice-annual self-imposed time change to totally disrupt our already dysfunctional sleeping cycles. Daylight saving time. The calls to end this, which has its uh, roots long ago, uh, growing louder by the year.
1: I'm sleeping. Oh, <laughs> sleep experts have, have joined those When calls. I don't like something, I just nap. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: I don't like switching the <laughs> clock, so I'm just going to crawl up here and forget that it actually happens.
1: Well, sleep experts, uh, they have joined uh, calls to end the whole spring forward, fall back routine as we do each spring and fall. Dr. Alon Alvedon is a neurologist and director of the UCLA Sleep Disorders Center. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So this really does a number on all of us, doesn't it? It really messes us up.
8: Yes. And uh, particularly in the spring, Um, uh, currently we're going to be experiencing an uh, increase in an extra hour of sleep. Uh, That uh, is really great. The problem is we're going to pay for it uh, when we uh, spring uh, forward uh, uh, in a this coming spring, but generally speaking, you know, it, it throws conf- the circadian clock gets confused when you begin to go to bed early or late when you lose sleep. Certainly you're waking up uh, in the springtime, you, you're you losing sleep and you're more likely to feel fatigued that while well, driving and then twerk. work. Right now, I think for most people, when they gain that extra hour, it's important in, in, in case they run into difficulties to maybe have a uh, dinner a bit later or to extend the amount of light uh, they get in the afternoon so they can start to, uh, making those adjustments to the circadian clock and get their uh, biological functions synchronized to the, to the new time may change.
0: How is it that just an hour can do this to us? Because it doesn't seem, oh, there's 24 of them in the day. It doesn't seem like just the one will, will phase me. We actually do see like car crashes and stuff, especially when, when the spring change happens.
8: Absolutely. There is a, a fairly impressive spike in a single occupant motor vehicle accidents the day after the uh, time when we lose time in the spring. Um, and that's that's well documented. And even one hour, one hour on top of um, in in addition to if the individual is already coming in sleep deprived or if they have untreated sleep apnea, that that can really uh, create a significant problem. And you know, you only need to have two hour time change to experience circadian disorders that would constitute jet lag syndrome, two hours. Two-hour time change. One hour is sufficient uh, to, to just throw things in, a. Um, getting your clock confused. <laughs> Two hours is going to get a disorder, get, get you to experience a disorder that would uh, um, cause you to be pathologically sleepy and uh, at times experience insomnia.
1: Okay, so, so give us some practical tips, if you can, on what we can do about it. I, I've resolved this year, I'm, I said it before, I'm just not going to change the yes. clock.
0: He's Arizona and Hawaii, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, they don't not, do it.
1: I'm, I'm not buying Guam, this
0: anymore. Virgin Islands, I think.
1: Yeah, they're yeah, on the list. They don't my, switch. Yeah, I'm putting my foot down. Uh, but, what, but those who are not going to put their foot down and are going to go ahead and uh, change their clock, what can they do?
8: Well, I'll, I'll tell you three practical tips. The first is um, try to... Currently, when when uh, we're going to gain that one hour is try to start uh, maybe going to bed uh, 20 minutes, half an hour later and waking up 20 minutes, half an hour later this weekend. Uh, when you're having dinner, maybe delay the dinner time by... By half an hour or an hour, if you can, because even feeding, even the the time in which you're having dinner, is sufficient to sufficiently strong enough as a circadian signal to the brain that uh, would allow you to then uh, start making the the circadian clock will start shifting in a direction of the new time change. The other issue is uh, trying to avoid uh, too much uh, light exposure in the morning but maximize light exposure uh, around five to six o'clock as much as you can. Uh, One other thing that helps is to drop the temperature in the bedroom um, perhaps a little bit later. So temperature, light exposure, eating, having dinner, socializing, that can all occur at least 20 minutes, half an hour uh, later. And um, as we're making the change to um, uh, towards Sunday, I think if people are making those incremental changes, the impact will be less significant. And of course, doing the other, the opposite, as we head towards the spring and we lose an hour, the idea is to go to bed earlier, have early morning light exposure, avoid too much light in the evening time, and having dinner. Half an hour to an hour earlier than usual. Do you so do all essentially... these
0: things, and then it's just you don't even notice the change, or do you just say that this is what we should do, and then see if we do it?
8: <laughs> yeah, great question. So I think this—if—if uh, if, uh, people don't have problems with uh, shifting to a, n- a new time zone or daylight they, they like saving time doesn't really impact them, they don't need to do. Um, you know, they don't necessarily need to follow anything. But but there are some folks out there that have a significant impact uh, because they're already sleep deprived. They already have insomnia. They already have a pre-existing sleep condition that when you lose an hour or you gain an hour, just that mi- mild change, relatively speaking, is sufficient to have a big impact. So for those individuals, I think they might want to be a bit more mindful about paying attention and, and following through with uh, the light uh, therapy or a, a increasing light exposure as we're heading towards Sunday and maybe t- having dinner a little bit later. For can, them, that's going to make a difference.
0: Can we just get rid of the whole thing? I'm in favor. I, I mean, states <laughs> have voted. We, I mean, it yeah. takes an act of Congress and all this. But, like, this, should we pick one? And then which one do we pick?
8: Yeah, that's that's an issue that's uh, currently being addressed at the level of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And there have been a, a, a number of papers showing that, uh, this this whole daylight saving time should should be abolished i think we we want to pick a time zone that is aligned with the maximum amount of light when we get up and still allowing us to benefit from light uh in a, as we leave work or as a um the afternoon issues but but once you introduce say changes say and you do that twice during the year you you're you're gonna the net benefit doesn't show that um, it uh, it promotes uh, better sleep. In fact, there is an increased uh, risk of um, cardiac comorbidities, oh, accidents. That's not
1: good. And, right, it's going to give us a heart so attack.
8: Exactly.
1: I, 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 well, I, I have a question. I, I was trying before to, to quickly jot down your formula for what to do in spring and fu- suppose you actually I, I'm likely to screw it up and do the fall one in the in the spring in the spring in the fall. What happens?
8: <laughs> well. Um, you know, I think that uh, it. <laughs> so it makes sense that um, uh, I guess if if you if you um, you're stumped. If, if, <laughs> you are he stumped. says, "Why can't this man work a clock?" A <laughs> clock. Yeah. yeah but, <laughs> Doc, we're running out of time.
0: We gotta go. Th- thanks so much, Doctor Alone Avedon, neurologist and director of the UCLA Sleep Disorders <laughs> Center. When it's one o'clock yeah. like Monday and you don't yeah. show up, we said Charles, you know <laughs> couldn't the, figure out the time change the eighteen hours ago or whatever the heck
3: it was. All right. That's yes for today. We'll be back tomorrow at one.